Today, we're going to be talking roll-ups, M&A, and venture capital in the property management space. This is a sensitive topic. It's a touchy topic. It's one that people have strong opinions about, and I have opinions, and I'm here to share them today. We're now on the backside of one specific cycle, the cycle of capital coming into the property management space into any vertical roll-ups. It's happened. It's going to happen. We're constantly somewhere in a cycle, but there's one cycle that is winding down. That was the initial most recent cycle that started, let's say, mm, 2018, somewhere around there. There was a good run of seeing outside capital come into the industry with a couple of different aims, generally generally looking to do a roll-up, generally looking to build larger businesses, leveraging economies of scale to build something that hadn't been done previously in a largely fragmented mom and pop type market. The reality is this is done in all markets. I got my start in this business working for a venture-backed homeowners association management company called Real Manage. Real Manage was born out of a venture fund. That fund had a EIR, an entrepreneur in residence, whose sole job was to analyze various markets, apply a specific thesis, which in this case involved disaggregation, fragmentation, lack of technology, all rolled up and reimagined with scale technology layered on top to produce outsized returns. The entrepreneur in question was my mentor and got me in business. And he looked at a bunch of different industries from law to uh, HOA to HVAC, a bunch of different industries and landed on HOA. So I got to see a little bit of a behind the scenes window into what that looked like. In that specific opportunity, it wasn't a home run. There were some wins, there was some roll-up, there was some M&A that happened, there was some technology that was born out of it, and all of that is still around. But from my perspective, it was not the size and scale of, of dream that it was originally, originally visioned and hoped to be. But what it did do is give me a good, clear mental model for that type of play. And now we're seeing it, we have seen some of the results bear out. We've learned some things. What initially was a thesis, an idea, has now had enough time lapse and enough cycles that we can draw some conclusions. I want to talk about what those look like. The initial players that we saw jumping into this space were from day one looking to leverage technology to generate outsized returns. That would be standardizing the operations of the business in a way that software can enable a dramatically different PL cost basis profile. Standardizing the way that the day-to-day -day business is done so that we could use things like uh, branching logic, we could have conditional workflows, we could lower the decisions that the number of decisions that need to be made by boots on the ground. And we could increase the quality of those decisions by leveraging data, analysis, insight, et cetera. It sounds good. It makes sense in, in, in at a surface kind of level. 
And obviously it makes sense at a broad generic level because this is done in industry after industry after industry and capital isn't stupid in aggregate. And in aggregate, the fact that this roll-up play has been done by from venture private equity, it tells you something about the merit of the play. That said, every vertical is unique. Let's talk about what's unique in property management. The first thing that comes to mind is the asset classes, the different types of properties. Not only the strata within one asset class, let's say it's single family, it's, it's SFR, single family residential. You got A, B, C. For C, it can go into a section eight territory. Uh, for, a a, for an A, it could be a fully furnished condo. There's variance within one specific asset type. And there's even more variance with adjacent assets, meaning single family detached unit versus fourplex versus smaller end of multifamily without an onsite manager versus 400 unit apartment complex, which is all very different than commercial, which is all different depending on the market we're in and the regulatory environment. Managing in Seattle is not the same as managing in Mobile, Alabama. All of these things introduce complexity, edge cases, and complexity and edge cases introduce compounding complexity when trying to build a master system that is looking to eliminate edge cases and exceptions by trying to standardize the whole thing. So when you roll those units up, you got to be thinking about what is the difference within my portfolio that is introducing a disproportionate tax surrounding complexity? My first observation is that not all units are created equally. And when you start trying to stick units together, driven by M&A, right? The acquisition strategy is, is in large part, who has the portfolio, who's willing to sell, who's willing to sell at a price that I agree for. Derivative of that is the types of units that you're buying, that you're trying to aggregate. How many markets are they in? How similar are they in nature? All of this is something you really, that is non-obvious from a distance. From a distance, it looks like a door is a door is a door. When you get up close, you realize that there's a massive amount of nuance. And that nuance is a mechanical, practical constraint. That nuance is a Debbie Downer. That nuance is not what you want to prevent present in your deck when you're raising capital, but the nuance is real. The nuance is the edges and the limitations of what you're able to standardize in the way that a, a scale quick software driven thesis would need in order to actually live out and happen. If it worked, if you are managing 20,000, 2000 square foot, non-furnished red houses built within the last 10 years, boy, that seems scalable. They're all in Texas. That seems scalable. I'd buy, I'd buy that. I'd buy that premise. You could put, you put some software in place and you're going to get, going to get some outsized leverage. Does that exist? A portfolio that is that big with that level of similarity exist? I haven't seen much of it. I've seen a lot of variance. I've seen a lot of, uh, expansion. And as the portfolio grows, so do the factors that drive complexity, which it, it, it's just one of the obst practical obstacles that has to be dealt with in order to get over the hump and, and make this happen. 
If it did work though, in that scenario, what would be the upside? Well, the upside would be a couple of fold. First off, you'd have the scale pricing power. You could maybe apply that to some of your vendors. Maybe not because they're local. They're small businesses. They're not a franchise. They don't, there's a limit to the degree, the degree to which they care about and can enable and enable economies of scale. Because what's the classic story with great local vendors? They were great. What'd you do? Because they were great. You gave them more business because they were great. And then eventually at a certain point, they stopped being great because you gave them so much business that it broke their systems. It satiated their financial appetites. They didn't really want to grow a massive organization. They were great at trade and craft, not great organization builders. So it was great until it wasn't. That would be the competing uh, constraint on benefiting from economies of scale. But uh, there probably is a subset of vendors and some national vendors in which that may not apply. That's one advantage. Another one would be labor. The technology is so great. The decision-making tree is so straightforward based on the similarity of assets that you really are, are able to standardize and centralize decision-making and to stratify the types of labor needed where it looks more uh, white-collar, centralized, uh, with boots-on-the-ground runners uh, and lower-wage teams on the ground. Best-case scenario, that's, that's what's supposed to happen. So how does that play out? Well, let's say that your cost basis is primarily defined by labor. Let's say that top half of top-line revenues is going to labor, which would be common based on what we know about financials for the industry. And somehow, through the power of your technology, you're able to suck it all out. That cost goes to zero. You've completely eliminated it. It's all robots running the whole thing. Well, what's that worth? If your cost basis was cut in half, we would expect a 2x return on a typical, typical EBITDA multiple. If your cost basis was cut um, by 75%, then we might expect a four times increase on the typic, typical EBITDA multiple. You can see where I'm going with this. The point being that the valuation impact on a small business where all of the labor is eliminated has a cap. Cutting out all of the cost basis and all of the labor means that the you can there's a, a way in which you can reason about what that company would then uh, be worth. And it's less than what the it's less than many of the venture valuations that were being made. Removing all of the cost basis doesn't justify a 30 times revenue multiple, even though at one point in time, that was within the realm of reason for the type of money that was coming into this space. That's a problem. That's something to be reconciled. And that is a lens through which to reason about what these businesses are worth, which is cash flow. And let me be open-handed in saying, I'm a cash flow kind of guy. I believe in cash flow. Cash flow is reality. Cash flow is something you can bet on. Cash flow is durable. Cash flow is a set of healthy, ongoing priorities that require you to create value for your customers, which is not necessarily the case when you're talking about a revenue multiple. A revenue multiple, you could get a big revenue multiple and have no profits on the basis of future growth, 
which presumes future cash flow. But the cash flow in venture doesn't necessarily need to exist in order to get a large, healthy revenue multiple. It's an assumption that on a long enough time horizon, it will appear, even though there may be years and decades in which it doesn't exist. And in certain businesses, this is justified. In software, where 80% gross margins are the expectation, you can see why that type of forward-looking, anticipatory thinking is justified. In service businesses, 80% gross margins are not reality. They're not justified. It's not something you can bet on that there's any reason to think is likely to happen. But there can still be healthy and great margins, and we have a mental model for how the industry reasons about that by looking at known multiples on existing portfolios. There are some players in our space that are buying on the basis of cash flow. And that to me is a really strong and healthy sign. If somebody buys my business for cash flow, I'm interpreting and intuiting a certain set of priorities, which is to say they value the value that I am creating for their customers. So what are the odds that they're going to come in and they're going to screw that up low? My anecdotal observation is that acquirers that value cash flow are more hands off with the business. They're more inclined to let it run as it was because that was what dri was driving the cash flow as opposed to an acquirer that's valuing it based on a revenue multiple that relates to a bigger revenue multiple thesis of if we can aggregate all of these units together and it's a big enough nut, some other acquirer comes in and they flip it. Those types of acquirers, in my experience, anecdotally, are less focused on cash flow and therefore are more apt, willing, and planning on making changes to day-to-day -day operations. In many cases, it's a necessity, particularly if it's the classic thesis that I articulated at the outset. Aggregation, centralize, aggregate, layer software on top. In that situation, the software needs to play out. The software needs to be utilized, which means day-to-day -day operations need to change. It's a bumpier ride. There's more changes that are made, and some folks are up for that. Some folks are stimulated that by that. Some folks take pause and exception and concern and don't want to see the, the business that they've built that was kicking off cash flow change. Your business may not have any cash flow, and therefore, uh, you may not have much attachment to the business changing. But those are some things that I think about when I look at the, the current batch of acquirers. If we think about what we've learned right now, software is another area to hone in on. The software thesis assumes that dramatic change in day-to-day -day ops is possible and it's possible at scale. That's not something we've seen happen yet. Is it possible? Yeah, there's, there's a possibility. It's possible and we see third parties doing it. We see third party vendors, PMSs, point solutions, leaning in and building useful tech that is impacting day-to-day -day operations. I'd go long on that. That has created value. It continues to create value. I see a robust possibility for more use cases, more solutions. Do I think there'll be some consolidation in that sp space? Yes, I do. But there's proven utility there and a, uh, an economic business model that justifies that. The nuance here has less to do with using software and more to do with the idea that a boots on the ground company 
whose revenues are constrained by the number of properties that they manage, is able to fund a quality and caliber of software that can compete with third-party vendors whose revenues and budgets are defined by the totality of the market that they can sell to. It's a very opinionated premise. It is to say, if I build a big enough software company, can I build that portfolio? Or at least a version of that portfolio that does enough to satiate my needs. Maybe it's not perfect for everybody, but for the type of portfolio I'm building, can it work for me? That's a very opinionated premise, and it's a very big bet. What competes with that? Well, first and foremost, the sheer economics of how much money you have to spend, which is defined by how many properties you manage. Now, can you get ahead of it with, with outside capital? Yeah, a bit. At the same time, the folks that you're raising from, the customers that you serve, your internal team can see that at some point this needs to become self-funding. And if the pool of available funds comes from the portion of your budget, which is to say a subset of revenue, you run a property management business or you're a part of a property management business, likely if you're listening to this, imagine how much of your budget you could redirect towards building in-house software, knowing the cost of software, knowing the skill set and the expertise required to build good software, hopefully not outsourced, hopefully done internally. I'm pretty opinionated about the idea that we're not, not being technical and working with a third-party shop to build tech. Good luck. I, I don't, don't know anything about that. And my, I take a dim view of, of, of the um, feasibility of that. But let's assume the best. And let's say that you're building tech in-house. It strikes me that the resources that you're competing against are staggering and are vast. The category, the companies that are in the category, in aggregate, we're talking tens of billions of dollars of market cap and more coming, right? PropTech is alive and well. There's a lot of outside capital that continues to come into our space on the pure play tech side. And if you're building all that in-house competing with that, we're seeing some compounding hurdles. There's the hurdles of funding it. There's the hurdles of building the software at a high quality. There's the hurdles of rolling it out for your own portfolio and working through all of the kinks of getting staff buy-in. Because unless you're doing this organically, you're buying portfolios that come with existing team members and you're mandating that they use these tools in order to be effective with their roles. You're building uh, an interface for owners and vendors as well. It's a tough nut to crack. That's the point here. It's not impossible. It's just a big ask. And if you're doing it on a, proper, on a service business's revenues, that's a steep hill to climb. So how is it played out? You could hear me pontificate, but we can also look at some of the practical mechanics of how we've actually seen it play out in the marketplace. And I would say this, there are a number of players that are still in flight that are waiting to see how it's going to go. There are a number of players that are in the graveyard. Um, and then there's folks that are in limbo where there are question marks somewhere in between. What I can tell you is that we have examples of large roll-ups and when I say large, I'm talking 10,000 units plus that are listed as publicly traded companies, renters, 
warehouse, now appreciate, listed as SFR, debuted in a SPAC. And you can go look at the stock ticker price and see the travails of how that's worked out. Right now, the company is trading for roughly close to the same amount of debt that they have on their books. The company is trading at, on a per-door basis, about what you would expect to trade to buy a single door for, meaning there, has not, there is no tech multiple in that uh, example. It's basically trading for what you'd expect to buy a 300-unit portfolio for, again, with the backdrop of being that there's, there's debt on the books that is the, roughly the equivalent of uh, the current market cap of the company. Uh, again, this is being recorded at a specific moment. The price fluctuates. This is not advice. This is merely observation. That's a data point. We have other players who have jumped in with pure play venture debt and built a lot of software. And that software has received mixed reviews. I can't tell you firsthand whether or not it's good or bad. What I can tell you is that there's clear examples where a lot of investment was made in the software and the software is not operational. It's no longer in existence. You could think of companies that, have, um, that are no longer in existence. Darwin Homes would be a great example. Ryan started that company. I don't, by the way, I don't have a firsthand personal relationship with, with Ryan, but I know that Ryan Broderick had a really great pedigree and background that was strong and compelling and was obviously enough to raise capital around. And the thesis sounded good. I was generally interested and curious to see how that was going to work out. And for whatever reason, that software investment that was made, that was developed, and that had some level of appeal is no longer in use. That's a conclusion we can, that's a data point we can draw some conclusion from. You could see a couple of other instances where a lot of money has been poured in the software and the software is not being used. And that's something we can draw conclusions from. There is no example of a third party residential property management company pouring a bunch of money into in-house software and that software being used effectively at scale to my knowledge. And even as I'm saying that, I can think of one, one uh, possible exception. In general, it's been a mixed bag in terms of how it has played out. Now, what's driving that? It's not fully clear. I want to see property managers win. Now, if you're listening to this, you know I have some pretty strong bias towards small business. You know that my people, my tribe, the people I've built a career around advocating for are small business owners. That said, I want to see small business owners build as big a bit build as big of a business as they want to do so. Therefore, I have a vested interest in seeing software have as much of a transformational impact on the industry as possible. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the very specific premise of building of service businesses building software in-house and the track record is a pretty mixed bag at some point. Now you still have uh, a number of players in the space and it's yet to, time, time will tell. Time is ticking, time will tell. At this exact moment when this is being recorded, June, 2023, the venture markets in general have collapsed. 
venture is in one of the weirdest places that it's been within the last 20 years. Not only has funding dried up, not only have valuations crashed, but the subset of dollars that are left are in large part being directed towards AI. Meaning there ain't much money left and that, that money which is left is not for folks that are not trying to build transformational, large AI-focused pure play businesses. In practical terms, what that means is that this is a hard time to be building a business that is built on the back of funding. And that's what venture is meant to do, to build large, high-growth businesses. The common saying in SaaS is triple, triple, double, double. To build a business that triples its revenues for two years in a row and then doubles its revenues two years in a row. Why is that the saying? Because the general goal is to get to $100 million in recurring revenue within 10 years. Because $100 million is the benchmark and is the bright line historically of how big a company needs to get in order to IPO. An IPO, an initial public offering, is when maximal liquidity enters to relieve longtime shareholders to allow them to actually participate in some of the immediate financial returns. So the goal of venture is to get big, fast, IPO, get liquidity. It's a high bar. And everything in venture just got a whole lot harder over the last 18 months. The general common wisdom right now is that people are needing to work twice as hard for half as much. Revenues are down. Budgets are down. It's hard to get funding. Down rounds are happening commonly right now. It's frequent to see companies that were raising at very, very large multi-billion dollar valuations. Unicorns. There was wave after wave of freshly minted unicorns. What's common right now is to see, A, companies like that going out of business because they've become uninvestable by virtue of how much capital they've taken on, the amount of yield that they've been able to produce with that capital, I, aka a lack of traction, and the way that the cap table is being structured. When you take on that much money, you experience a lot more dilution. And the dilution is fine if the business gets big enough. As the saying goes, would you rather own half of a grape or 1% of a watermelon? But when the business isn't going well and you've experienced a ton of dilution, what that mean, means is that existing founders, team members, and shareholders are being disproportionately crushed on the cap table for sparse and meager remaining results. The problem with that is morale, motivation. When stockholders, when team members that made sacrifices or were sold high hopes and aspirations realize that their options are, are worthless, because the fundamental premise of an option is that you have a strike price and that strike price exists in the future. You don't get any credit for where, for the size of the business when you showed up. You only get credit if the business grows sufficiently on top of the existing growth that existed when you showed up. When a down round occurs, in many cases, folks realize that if they bust their hump and stick around for years, it's unclear if the company is ever going back get to get back to the valuation that they previously saw and previously joined and were incented by. When that happens, a couple of things occur. 
Number one, it's a morale hit. Number two, people recalibrate how they think about comp. They realize that the comp that matters is cash. The comp that matters is money in the bank, not aspirational possibility of what could be, given that the what could be that they were sold has now effectively destroyed any possibility of them actually being able to participate in upside in the near term. These are the, these are the realities. None of this is intrinsically good or bad. These are simply the realities of the competitive landscape that exists within venture. And if and when you build a business that requires you at all times to be demonstrating enough growth to enable the next round of funding because the business is not profitable, but that's it, but it, it's acceptable because revenue growth is growing fast enough that it's demonstrating outsized returns if and when the company either IPOs or offers secondary, or at some point in the future becomes profitable, then you keep going, you keep investing. And if you're growing fast enough, you demonstrate enough growth to be able to secure a new round of funding. And right now, funding is just hard to, uh, to come by. And the terms and the structure with which it is being offered are dramatically different, different than they were. That's everything from the, from the amount of progress that you need to demonstrate to uh, the covenants, the amount of money that you need to have on hand, to the terms and conditions of when the money is released, to governance, oversight, board structure, things. That, that game is hard, and it just got a whole lot harder. So what's the point of all this? These are data points to inform how to interpret and think about the impact of venture in our space, the, the impact of outside capital in our space. That is one specific way to deploy capital. Another specific way to deploy capital is in a cash flow driven roll-up where you're buying offices, you're keep, keeping operators around, you're buying operators that you believe in, that you believe will be loyal and will stick around. And you'll probably have lockups that require them to stick around for a number of years. You're buying staff, you're buying teams, you're buying systems, processes, branding, you're buying cash flow, and you're stacking cash flow on top of cash flow to expect an appropriate risk adjusted return, AKA making a common sense investment grounded in cash flow, in demonstrable cash flow here today. Another way to label this would be value investing. This is what the, the Berkshires of old have modeled for many, many years. And it's not venture. It's not tech. It's not getting to a billion dollar valuation within five years. Um, but it has, it, it has something going for it. And that is stability, downside protection, margin. Capital coming in and building organizations like that, I really don't have any reason to doubt. The same complexities that I articulated around aggregating units still apply. You got to be wise. If the markets, if you have four offices and they are in San Diego, uh, Seattle, Mobile, Alabama, and Portland, Maine, I don't know why you would do that. That doesn't make any sense to me. 300 unit offices in each of those markets doesn't make any sense to me. But if you're taking a sound approach 
structurally to the type of units that you're trying to aggregate. You're being sensible about how much can be done boots on the ground versus back office. You're focused on building great teams, great seasoned operators. I can't see any reason why that wouldn't work. And we see a number of examples of where I I would say with the level of access and clarity that I've had that that is working at a scale that is in excess of 10,000 units at a time. I'm not an Oracle. I don't have all the answers. Nobody does. But we can reason about what's happening in the marketplace and reason is what is needed. Reason is the opposite of the hype train. Reason is the opposite of hysteria. Reason is the opposite of groupthink. Reason is the opposite of deferring to other people to make decisions for you. And I've seen that happening far too much in this space. That's probably the thing that concerns me most about this conversation is the level of knowledge asymmetry that exists between boots on the, on the ground operators that are interacting with this topic and being forced to make decisions and the outsiders that are coming in with decks and charts and graphs and, and valuation models, et cetera. Due diligence is what's required. Thinking through the thesis, thinking through the mechanics of how to make money in this business. You, the boots on the ground, the person that's been in this industry for 20 minutes, for 20 years plus, you know how to make money in this business. There's not an outsider that has some magic recipe that knows something you don't. And I'm extremely intolerant and put off by any airs or pretenses along those lines. I remember being in a room one time with an outsider, an outsider, however you want to interpret that, listening to a panel of SMB operators. And this character leans over to me and makes the comment, I think they call them small businesses for a reason. And it was a really condescending comment. And that doesn't define the category of outside capital as a whole by any stretch of the imagination. But there is a subset of folks that are internalizing that thought. And when I say a subset of folks, I'm talking about small-time operators and outside capital. Small-time operators that are thinking that they don't know, that the outsider knows the business mechanics, that somehow it's some presentation or chart, and I don't really understand it, but you know, it seems like a lot of people... People smarter than me know what's going on. The money men know what's going on. That's BS. It's complete and utter BS. A proposition that cannot be a financial and a business proposition in residential property management that cannot be clearly and articulately and cogently explained to a competent seasoned SMB operator is nonsense. It is not something that should be listened to or entertained, period. Anything that has sense can be deconstructed, broken down, explained, walked out in simple layman's terms. And if it can't, get suspicious. Wonder where the magical thinking is. Wonder where the greater, greater fool theory is being invoked. Greater fool theory is to say, well, it's, it's a bit of a gamble, but everybody's doing it. And there's probably another sucker who's willing to pay even more derivative and downstream. Might be, might be the case. It might not. There's a lot of risk in that. And in some cases, that's a fit for somebody who's going in eyes wide open. They know what they're buying. They know what they're looking at. And it's an informed decision. I have no concerns or, or hesitations. It's a free country. 
every what people's interests and their risk profile differ. Again, there's nothing to moralize about. If that's what you're into, go for it. If you're unclear, if you don't understand, take the time, slow it down, ask people to repeat things, ask for specifics, numbers, ask for the invocation of basic math to explain how a risk-adjusted return will be achieved. A risk-adjusted return involves is, is to say there is risk and the upside is commensurate with the risk. Whether or not you're pursuing cash flow or you're pursuing outsized venture returns, in all cases, that's what we're solving for. I hope this is helpful. It's clearly something that I have opinions and thoughts about. It's a topic that's near and dear, again, because of the knowledge asymmetry that I see existing in the marketplace, because of the confusion that I see in the marketplace. If you have questions or you want to talk about it, I'm, I'm here for you. I've had, ten, I've had many, many, maybe 40 or 50 conversations with individual operators on this uh, topic, what it means for them, had a reason about it. My advice and counsel is to keep talking about it, to keep the dialogue going, to be to welcome with open arms outsiders who want to make this industry better. I'm also not down with the cheap labeling that the outsiders are bad and polluting things and disrupting and stepping on the little guy. No. Capital is about creating value. Value is about progress. I'm here for progress and maximal value creation in this industry, wherever it comes from, by any means necessary. At the same time, we need to think hard about these thesis. When something new comes along, let's apply sense and think hard and give it all the scrutiny and due diligence that it's worth. Thanks for hearing me out. Let's keep the conversation going and uh, see what happens here over the next three or four years in this space. I don't know what it's going to be, but I can promise it's going to be really, really exciting. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me, send me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.